Hello, and welcome to the NVIDIA AI Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Kravitz. My guest today is Dr. Anima Anand Kumar. Dr. Anand Kumar is Director of Machine Learning Research at NVIDIA and a Bren Professor at Caltech in the Computing and Mathematical Sciences Department. She's also co-director of Dulcet and co-leads the AI for Science initiative there. Anima spearheaded the development of tensor algorithms, and her research now spans both theoretical and practical aspects of machine learning, including the development of next-generation AI algorithms. Anima has received many awards throughout her career, too many to list here, honestly, across academia, industry, and the mainstream media alike. I could go on and on with the intro, but we've got her here, so let's just get to it. Anima, thank you so much for taking the time to join the AI podcast. Thank you, Noah. This is my pleasure. And uh, I'm so glad that you're doing the podcast on AI. There is so much to be covered and uh, what you're doing is amazing. I, I mean, the, the pleasure is is mine. And and uh, I, I, I'll say thank you because that's the appropriate thing to say. But but I think, honestly, the amazing work is coming on your end. I'm just just helping people tell their stories. I'm happy to do it. So there's a lot we can talk about. Uh, maybe let's start with NeurIPS, which as we record in uh, mid-November is a few weeks away in early December. Uh, maybe you can start by telling folks a little bit about the conference and then specifically what you and your team are bringing this year and what you're excited about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, NeurIPS uh, is short for Neural Information Processing. So if I start with the history, I don't think many of people know that uh, it started at Caltech. Okay. You know, in 87. And in fact, the birth of it can be traced back to a course that Richard Feynman, John Hopfield, and Carver Mead did together because they realized that for AI, you need to bring in the physics, computation, and neural networks together. Right. So that visionary uh, in a course led to the development of the computational neuroscience major at uh, Caltech and the conference NeurIPS. And, uh, you know, it was a small event for many years. When I started going, it was about 700 people, and now it's 10,000. <laughs> so you see this exponential growth, and that yes. shows what this deep learning revolution has done. And it's exciting, uh, but also in terms of how do we ensure that everybody in the community is able to get the best benefits from the current AI and can contribute in a meaningful way. So exciting times overall. Is there a focus uh, to this year's conference? So NeurIPS tends to be very broad, mm -hmm. right? One of the broadest events because, you know, it's not limited to computer vision or language processing. It's not limited to any one particular domain, but more focus on the algorithms. And that's my background as well. Right. So thinking about how we can develop new algorithms, analyze them better, right? And of course, show the impact in various applications. Uh, the main difference, of course, is with everything else being virtual, you know, NeurIPS with 10,000 people, there is no <laughs> way that uh, even, you know, earlier in this year, we ever thought it would be realistic to have a physical event. And, and I think some aspects of that will miss because last year in 2019 uh, in Vancouver, when we were there, right, there was so much energy, right, of especially young students um, coming up to you and like, you know, and asking me what it takes to be in grad school. Should you go to industry? Should you be in academia? And there were so many different social events that were great to, you know, have young people feel like, you know, this is not a big event after all. It's made up of 
humans and right. there is human connections. And it'll be interesting to see how that's done virtually, but I think that'll be a big challenge. Yeah, the whole, it's a separate, separate conversation, separate podcast <laughs> for that matter, but the whole idea of taking events virtually and, and the trade-offs in that is, is definitely a, a, an interesting thing we're all living through right now. What have you, what have you and your team or the, the people who you mentor and work with been working on? Uh, and then specifically, if you want to talk about things you're bringing to NeurIPS this year. Yeah, that's a great question, Noah. And uh, I've had the pleasure to, you know, have uh, multiple papers. If you're counting seven papers into NeurIPS, congratulations! Personal record for me, but it speaks more about the amazing team I have, both at NVIDIA and on the Caltech side. Mm -hmm. Right. So to give an overview of what's uh, in those papers, I want to first talk about what we mean by next generation AI, yeah. right? So what's now, right now currently that the deep learning revolution has enabled very well, and then what's still missing. And to me, the primary aspects are going from supervised learning to unsupervised and self-supervised learning, right? Like having this ability to overcome the dependence on label data is an important one. Right. The other is in terms of having more robust priors, you know, uh, we have incredible robustness in human perception, right? Uh, we're able to make sense of all kinds of blurry images, occlusions, all these degradations. And you see all these examples of neural networks with very small perturbations that are imperceptible, completely fooling the network. So that's the second facet that I think uh, a lot of, you know, things have to be overcome for deep learning to be enabled in practical scenarios. And the third one is in terms of like designing, right, better tasks, mm. right? So not just uh, optimizing in one fixed benchmark on one metric, but in real life, we have multiple objectives. We have uh, to be adaptive. We have to quickly change from one task to another, right? So these are very uh, practical requirements as well in many applications. So to me, this aspect of breaking down the design of an AI algorithm into enabling data that is unlabeled and potentially very noisy and having uh, better priors that are more robust and having better task design that can be more adaptive and multitask that I see as the overall picture where we have uh, uh, things lacking in the current status quo. And so in terms of the papers that are appearing in Europe, uh, the one I want to highlight first is how to deal with these uh, design of better priors, right? And to me, the best inspiration comes from a human brain. Of course, there is a significant gap between what humans can do and what AI can today. Uh, but to me, the question is, are there mechanisms in the human brain that we can try to mimic in AI? Maybe not faithfully generate every aspect of it because right. there is even so much we don't understand very well, but can we mimic? And uh, this came out of uh, collaboration uh, between Caltech and NVIDIA and within Caltech also collaboration with Doris Saw, who is neuroscientist, right? So I think this was critical to understanding what we know from the neuroscience side and bring that into AI. And what we realized was that the crucial aspect that's missing in current neural networks is the feedback, right? So when you're seeing me on the screen or perceiving any object out there, mm -hmm. you know, it's not just um, a direct 
decision by the brain, right? In the sense, it's uh, you have the signal coming from the external world and that goes through a feed-forward neural network, uh, you know, similar to what we see in artificial networks. Right. But then the brain has its own generative model. And then the, it's able to provide feedback because of the learned representations, because of what it thinks you know, that I should look like on the screen, right? right? right so right. if there are any gaps, if, you know, the bandwidth suffers, <laughs> right. there is... Uh, the brain you know, can kind of fill that in. <laughs> exactly, right? And that's uh, that's what we realized was critical to build into standard neural network architectures that are only feed forward. And so we designed this mechanism that now adds feedback in a recurrent way and learns a generative model in terms of, you know, if I'm classifying an image as a cat, how should a cat look like, mm-hmm. right? Can I try to reconstruct some representation of the cat? And by doing this, we can now provide inherent robustness to the network, meaning even if during training it's never seen uh, degraded images, it can still at test time be able to have a robust uh, classification of what's in the image. And to me, I think this is a great foundation for building more robust uh, AI. How successful is that mechanism right now? How far along is it? Yeah, so we've shown this on uh, standard benchmarks uh, like CIFAR. And uh, indeed, right, there is a lot of questions of how to architecturally make the right choices Mm -hmm. in terms of the balance between now having a predictive model for classification as well as a generative model, right? So this model has to now do both well. Right. So how to balance that? Uh, and I think there are, there are so many open problems there, <laughs> but we uh, found uh, very uh, promising results in being able to obtain uh, state-of-the-art on the, the standard benchmarks. Right, right, great. Trying to step back for a second, and, and please reframe my question, restate my question if there's a better way to ask this. But you're talking about um, this idea of next generation algorithms. If you're able to kind of look at a, a, a timeline of AI and deep learning and thinking about kind of this first generation versus this next generation, where are we right now? Are we kind of on the the precipice? Are we still sort of um, laying the foundational groundwork to get into this second generation or next generation? Kind of where are we on the continuum of of algorithms? I think that's a great question. I think it's like, uh, you know, we're simultaneously doing all this, (laughs) right? I mean, there's so many industries where even the low-hanging fruits haven't been realized yet because, right, they're lacking the infrastructure for the data and getting all the experts uh, to build this together. And then uh, we have uh, research, uh, you know, like uh, labs like uh, NVIDIA Research, thinking about, okay, where do we go five to 10 years and beyond from here, right? So we see all this uh, shape up, but, I think by the last two years or so, people acknowledge, yes, now there are severe gaps, right? Right. There is uh, just no way, for instance, uh, autonomous driving to just happen on its own in the (laughs) next few years. It won't just be like, oh, just throw everything at a deep neural network and magic happen. (laughs) Right, right, right. Right? That's not true. It needs to be much more uh, thoughtful and into the development of new algorithms. And to me, that's exciting as a person who, you know, who does 
<laughs> no, it, 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 uh, one of the things in speaking with you and, you know, the listeners are listening via audio only. I have the, the, the bonus of seeing you. And I mean, the energy is, is in your voice and in your face as you, as you talk about this. Thank you. You know, you mentioned the, the work in looking and working with neuroscientists and looking more into trying to mimic some of these, um, I don't know if advanced is the right word, but to me, it's kind of like a, a, a more advanced looking at how the brain functions and how some of these uh, architectures and, and functions can be replicated in algorithms. I think for some of the less, maybe some of the folks listening to the show who aren't hands-on in the field every day, but more kind of have an interest, this notion of moving from, you know, a computer science problem to a multidisciplinary problem might be a little bit of a light bulb, might be something like, oh, I hadn't really thought of that. Although when I think about the word neural and neural networks, you know, does have that association. Is this a new thing? Is this kind of a... um, a, a big moment in terms of collaborating with neuroscientists and across other disciplines, or is it actually something that's kind of, you know, been foundational to AI and your work since the beginning? Yeah. I mean, in fact, it's been foundational to the field, right? Like I told you, the history of neurops started with the understanding that neuroscience is a core foundation of this. And, you know, over the years, I guess, you know, as always happens with a mad rush, right? I mean, there's so many exciting things yeah. happening with fairly standard neural networks. Let's get the <laughs> you know, best uh, results out of that. And then slowly, I think we are seeing the plateau and then we want to go back and ask, okay, is there inspiration from other fields, right? And in this case, neuroscience, but also inspiration can come in terms of better benchmarks and more challenging problems. You know, we've been working with... Uh, the hard problem of uh, solving uh, fluid dynamics or uh, quantum chemistry, right? So these are highly expensive calculations that require supercomputers. Mm -hmm. And if we can speed them up, uh, then we can do drug discovery better, discover new materials, you know, potentially for catalysts in uh, solar cells. Uh, And by solving fluid dynamics, we can design better aircrafts and drones and all kinds of uh, applications, right? And so I think there's just, again, so much of like impact that can be had by solving some foundational problems in sciences. Mm -hmm. By collaborating with uh, domain experts, we can combine their domain knowledge with deep learning in a very meaningful way. You know, it's no longer just a deep network by itself from scratch. We learn everything because these problems are so difficult. And you also want extrapolation beyond what you've seen in training data. But on the other hand, the traditional methods by themselves are brute force and extremely slow, right? So those combinations we've seen give very impressive results, be thousand times faster than traditional methods while retaining their accuracy. And on hard problems like this quantum chemistry energy calculations or being able to solve Navier-Stokes for fluid dynamics from scratch. So I find uh, that kind of collaboration as well to be uh, very fruitful and exciting. Our guest today is Dr. Anima Anankumar. She is the Director of Machine Learning Research at NVIDIA and also a Bren Professor at Caltech. That brings me to, I want to ask you about um, this kind of uh, not so uncommon these days, but still kind of unique role that you have with one foot in industry and uh, one foot in academia, but kind of to to back up and then come to that point, maybe you can go back to tell us a little bit about uh, how you got here, how you first got interested in computers, computer science. 
Did you know uh, as, as a young person that you were interested in science, interested in technology, interested in solving these hard problems, or how'd you get on this path? Yeah, you know, I remember two passions, right? It was math and it was dancing. Nice. And in fact, I found like a lot of connection together because the rhythm and mm-hmm. the flow, the dance and right, the beauty and structure of math, I could like identify in both of them. And, uh, you know, I'm really lucky to also have uh, parents and grandparents who encourage those endeavors. My mom is also an engineer and that really helped me have a role model. Yeah. Uh, Right. In terms of uh, there was never a notion that for a girl to be good in math is unusual. Right. right? right. And I think in early childhood, I will never know what if I was exposed to that uh, notion, where would I have gone? No idea. (laughs) But thankfully, I had uh, that encouragement. My grandfather was a math teacher. And so, you know, a lot of my childhood involved, like kind of lots of puzzles. And every day (laughs) I would like demand a new puzzle, a new (laughs) problem to solve. And so it was always made something as fun and exciting. And then my uh, parents also have a small scale industry to manufacture machine tools and uh, automotive parts. And they were the first ones, you know, in the city we lived in, which is Mysore, to have a computerized numerically controlled machines or CNC machines. Oh, yeah. OK. <laughs> so I was introduced to programming in a more uh, unusual way because, <laughs> you know, I was looking at these machines and, OK, how do you get this to work on right, its own? Right, right. You know, how can you design it to be so precise? And so I think that gave me, again, a great way into uh, the power of programming. So combining all this for me, like yes, understanding the foundations and theory, right? The beauty in math was great. And the practical engineering side, seeing all these, you know, huge components being machined and you could right. see the power of uh, what programming does. Yeah, that combination was great. And so when I uh, came to a college level, I went to IIT, uh, the Indian Institute of Technology, and there, there was a strong emphasis, right, on, again, the foundations for engineering. I did electrical engineering, which in retrospect was a great uh, combination of like having signal processing and understanding how you can represent signals with Fourier theory, which is, in fact, right, the foundation also for convolutional neural networks. And uh, also doing a minor in computer science gave me the tools, right, right. in terms of algorithmic uh, design. Yeah, so that's kind of the journey in terms of like how, you know, I got the right foundation and starting grad school at uh, Cornell uh, meant, okay, what kind of ways can I best apply this? Mm -hmm. I started looking at sensor networks, which now they're called Internet of Things. But back then, (laughs) the name hadn't (laughs) been invented. But indeed, uh, the insight was there that there is uh, a lot of uh, problems where you would have many, many connected devices. Can they talk to one another wirelessly, but they have limited battery, they have limited bandwidth to talk to. And ultimately, they're collecting all these measurements to make some inference, right? Like saying whether there is anomaly in a manufacturing plant or what's the overall temperature in this room or all kinds of uh, monitoring tasks. Right. 
So I was designing algorithms to enable this kind of distributed processing. Uh, so that was my first project uh, in my grad school. And over time, I went deeper and deeper into different machine learning tools uh, because back then there wasn't like an easy way to have test beds with right. <laughs> lots of these sensors. I mean, it's now happening, right? It's yeah. great to see that. Uh, and with 5G and all the convergence, it's great to see all that come together. Uh, but I moved more into uh, what you would say as purely machine learning area that is looking at how to learn from large data sets. You know, how do you extract uh, hidden uh, information from this in an unsupervised way. Mm -hmm. So even before the deep learning revolution, my emphasis was on unsupervised learning. And what we've seen over the last few years is supervised learning is uh, working when we have large data sets like ImageNet, but in so many domains, we don't have that. And we also need robustness that's coming more from unsupervised learning. And so now seeing the focus come back to unsupervised and self-supervised learning uh, means that right the techniques that I uh, looked into before the deep learning revolution are more relevant than ever. To go back to something you said kind of near the top when we were talking about NeurIPS and and it being you know virtual this year as as all the other events are, and missing out on that social aspect, including you know a, um, a young person coming up to you and saying you know hey I, I I'm interested in this and I know I want to do it, should I get a job or should I go to school? Is it kind of a natural thing now for you to, to sort of hold both posts and, and work in academia while also working at a company like NVIDIA? Is that kind of commonplace amongst your colleagues? I mean, it's more common than ever before, right? Yeah, Which yeah. is, I think, a great thing about the field, having so much of open sourcing and open publications and the companies like NVIDIA having the vision to understand how this is beneficial to everyone mm -hmm. and uh, something to be encouraged, uh, but not all companies are at the same level, right? right? So right. we are seeing that, and, and that's the question. For it to be sustainable, I think universities also have to be more open-minded and saying, this is going to benefit the students, this is benefiting the community, and same with the companies. Right, right. So I hope this continues and grows even more. And so then what, what do you say to that young person when they ask, and I, I'm sure it's situational depending on the person and the context, but is it still important to start with the to go to go to university to get that that grounding in you know whatever it is today but for you electrical engineering and minoring computer science or are we at a point where going and working in industry is kind of a, a faster path and you'll pick up the skills along the way yeah like you said no it's so uh, individual and uh, contextual right because not everyone has the luxury to go to college right. even right yep. there's uh, a lot of uh, struggles that people have to go through so i think the question in general is uh, what is the goal like what academia can provide is you know, a lot more freedom than industry can, right? Again, yeah. there are particular situations where there are exceptions. And to go deep into the topic, like to take more time understanding the theory and uh, being able to work out proofs on your own, I think getting that firm understanding, that's one uh, thing working for academia. And I think the other one that is even more important than that is uh, that broader academic experience, right? Like uh, being able to understand what this person in neuroscience is doing or seismology or uh, quantum chemistry, right? These are all aspects that even today, even with all this research investment in industry, it's not this broad. 
will never be that broad. And that's what we uh, will see in uh, academia. And so for somebody who wants to have that broader exposure to sciences, to social sciences and humanities, getting that uh, exposure, I think, is valuable. Uh, on the other hand, missing out on industry is also not a good idea because the hands-on skills and the scale of compute, the engineering background, uh, there is more of it uh, being available there. And what I'm trying to do is bridge this gap. So that way, my students and collaborators are getting best of both the worlds. Right. So we, we've talked about, or you talked about a, a few of these things already, but just kind of to, to bring it back first, full circle, what are some of the things that you have your eye on or you and, and the, your colleagues or your students who you're mentoring have your eyes on as far as algorithm design goes over the next you know, year, two years, five years? You probably know better than I do what, what, the, what the near-term horizon is. But um, you, know, you talked about next-generation AI and unsupervised learning, semi-supervised learning being, being kind of the big things. Are there are those the, the key things? Are there other things that you're excited about and kind of keeping an eye on? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other important aspect is how to design good benchmarks, mm. right? So I briefly talked about it earlier. One of the newest papers is on doing that. Uh, what we show is uh, a really simple task uh, or a set of tasks where, you know, they look like just hand-drawn free shapes, right? So you'd be like, oh, for a neural network, this should be trivial, right? Because it can do all these complex images. And that's where I think we have to be careful to judge what neural networks can and cannot do, mm. because they work very different from how humans do. Mm -hmm. And so in this uh, case, what we call this the Bongard logo challenge, it's inspired by uh, Bongard in uh, 1960s, who designed like an IQ puzzle kind of thing, an analogy kind of puzzle, where for humans, you know, it's fairly easy, right? Of course, you have to go look at the shapes and you have to look at what's common concept here in this set of shapes versus this other set of shapes, right? So, and then a new image, you have to classify, does it belong to set A or set B? Right. But, you know, it's not just one such test, it's like tens of thousands of such tests we uh, design. Right. And uh, then we asked, can uh, these neural networks now learn this? Uh, notice that how different this is from standard classification, because in standard classification, you have tons of examples for each category, right? And it's a fixed task. Whereas here you have a ton of tasks, right? Tens yeah. of thousands of tasks. And each task has just few examples. This is called few short learning. And what we see is humans can do very well. Uh, you know, in fact, those that are careful and they like solving puzzles can do like 99% on this benchmark with accuracy, whereas uh, machine learning ones can barely come up to 70%. Right, right? Right, so right. what we see is now this huge gap in terms of being able to not um, learn even very simple concepts that humans can do very uh, quickly. Uh, and so we uh, found this as a way of what's missing in the current algorithms. So we hope that this benchmark will continue to be used as a way to improve our uh, few short learning and meta learning methods. Sounds simple enough. <laughs> <laughs> but so difficult. But so difficult. So for folks listening who want to find out more, and, and in my head, there's kind of two categories. There's folks who might want to 
follow along with NeurIPS this year or perhaps access materials after the fact. Uh, and then there's your own work, your your homepages or your research page in NVIDIA, those kinds of things. Where are some places that people can go online to find out more about all the work that you're involved with? Yeah, I mean, there's multiple media. There is my research webpage um, at Caltech where I'm also you know, hosting all the different uh, uh, works and also on the NVIDIA page. And we have project pages that dedicate, uh, right, focus to individual projects and open source code and so on. And also on Twitter, there is a lot of engagement there. And uh, in addition to research, I think what's socially relevant today in terms of you know, how people are interacting in social media, how do we understand that better, you know, in terms of diversity and inclusion in tech and beyond. I think these are all things uh, I like to be engaged in. So I uh, welcome you there. <laughs> I didn't mention uh, the diversity, inclusion and, and all these topics only because we have limited time. And I know that that's something that I didn't want to just give lip service to, but I know the little bit that I know about your work, I know that's important to you and something that is, as you're involved with. Um, so the Twitter feed perhaps is uh, where people can get a little more taste of that. Maybe we can have you back on in the future and kind of speak specifically to um, diversity inclusion and this whole notion of democratization of, um, we talk about a lot about democratization of tools, right? The AI tools becoming more accessible, but I think there's a different meaning relative to what happens when people working in the field come together and how people interact with each other and, and all of that. So conversation for another date, I hope. Yes, absolutely. There's so much to be done there and so much to talk about. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much again. Uh, I think anybody listening heard it, but the the passion you have for your work and and the um, the joy in it really come comes across in your story about being young and just you know I need another puzzle. Where's another puzzle? It, it really feels like you've you've got that same spirit today. It was a a pleasure to hear you talk about your work. So again, Anima, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you so much, Noah. I enjoyed it so much. 